back in orange. Orange is the new black. I'm very excited for our guest today. He's into and pretty much an expert in some of my favorite topics, including persuasion, hypnosis, psychology. He's very charismatic. I found him on YouTube. A video was recommended to me. He was dissecting one of my favorite shows of all time, The Mentalist, Mr. Patrick Jane, saying kind of what was real, what is over-exaggerated, and it was really good. So I reached out to him on Instagram, and this is one of my favorite things about creating content, having a platform, no matter how big, how small it is, you can reach out to these people that you watch, try to give them value, and then develop a relationship. And uh, we were shooting the shit for a couple days back and forth, and I think we really connected. And uh, it's Mr. Spidey Hypnosis. What up? I can't, what up? I can't say your full name, but you've been on Netflix, um, Fox, TMZ. I mean, all these different uh, shows. You've been in the game for a while. And let's get after it. I'm excited. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. Beautiful. And you're in Montreal, uh, Canada, right? Yes, sir. 2 a.m. your time, 8 a.m. my time. You're, you're a night owl, huh? Yeah, man. I come alive in the nighttime. This is where I get my, my best thinking done, my best creativity. When, when the world is silent, or at least my side of the world is silent, I get some good creative juices flowing. <laughs> well, it makes sense to a magician. You guys kind of you know, are in the, the, the yep. shadows and, yeah. and making things happen, some magic tricks. <laughs> How'd you get into this stuff? Um, you know, it's interesting because this stuff, this stuff is a tough word for me because this stuff encompasses a lot of different things. I got into magic when I was a lot younger as a so social sort of crutch, you know, because like when you know magic, there's a stigma about magic being sort of dorky and it, and it kind of is if you present it that way. But when you know magic and you know how to do it right in social situations, it accelerates your capacity to connect with people. So it, that's the thing I loved about it most. And then as I as I got older, I realized I really love the mental side of magic. You know, the stuff where you get in people's heads or make it seem like you're getting inside their heads, which is called mentalism. And at the time I was studying social psychology in university, which is what I got my degree in, and sort of progressed from magic to mentalism to hypnosis to like the real magic, which is using psychological principles to actually create change in yourself and the people around you, which to me is, is the purest form of magic. Words are our, our most powerful magic. Beautiful. Yeah. That's uh, the social crutch. I think I've heard from many magicians or, or people that get into this is why they got into it. They kind of get some social credit and whatnot. And I mean, you look at people like Patrick Jane on the mentalist and they're so magnetic, full of charisma I mean, just super cool. You know okay. what I mean? Okay. And that's what I want to get into. What makes them so like cool? Ah, so let's talk about Patrick Jane. Obviously, one of my favorite topics. And I've got, you know, tons of videos on the channel where I break down scenes from him and I and we talk about the reality of it. Patrick Jane is to me a blessing and a curse at the same time. And I'll I'll explain why. It's funny because in the show, he's very opinionated about psychics, right? We see him like talk about how psychics are fraudulent and they take people's money for, for fraudulent uh, uh, sort of practices. And the thing he hates is that 
they spread false belief, right? But then that's ironic because he does the same thing. When people watch The Mentalist, they think that that's what mentalists can do. That Because he's got all these scenes where he walks in and he, he's really good at observing things and kind of noticing things about people and he profiles them really, really effectively. And all of a sudden, there's all these things about them. And then every now and then, he'll do a trick. He's done card tricks. He's done mind reading tricks, like performances. The only part of that that mentalists actually do is the trickery stuff. Mentalism is trickery. But because of things like this, the mentalist, or because of mentalists, real mentalists who lie about what they do on stage, there are people out there who believe that we have the capacity to look at you and from subtle body language cues, we know what card you're thinking of or what your mom's name is. We can't do that. When we're telling you what card you're thinking of, when we're telling you you know, your mom's maiden name, when we're telling you the details of a memory that you're thinking of, this is all trickery. But because of a character like Patrick Jane, people think it's legit. And it's really hard to fight that because of something called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Are you familiar with that, Nick? It rings a bell. Right. So, so, so the Dunning-Kruger effect is basically when people know one little thing about something and they consider themselves experts. So somebody who's seen a couple of episodes of uh, The Mentalist thinks they understand everything about mentalism or because they saw a YouTube video of a mentalist explaining something, they think they're experts. So they're arguing with me. Like they'll come on a channel, they'll tell me I'm wrong about mentalism. And Nick, to, to put into perspective how frustrating that is, imagine somebody trying to tell you what's what about football because they watched The Blind Side. You understand? Like that. that's how frustrating that is. So there's all these misconceptions out there that mentalists can do this and they can't you know, we can read minds, we can read body language, and we, we could persuade you with our words to think of specific animals. We can't. It's all trickery. The people who are actually really good at that stuff don't get on stage and perform mentalism. They're out there profiling for the CIA, for the FBI, doing interrogations. That's the people who can really do this stuff. Well, do you get a lot of heat? Because in your world, this is a big no-no, right? To say magic's fake, to say mentalism's fake, because it's a lot of like, you know, facade on the outside and and uh, smoke. So is that why you get a lot of shit from people? Well, here's the thing: it's okay to say magic is fake, right? It's it's it. You're supposed to say that because if a magician got on stage, made a handkerchief disappear, and then a rabbit appear from his head and try to convince you that that's real magic, he'd be laughed at. The problem is most people don't have a very good barometer when it comes to mentalism. They don't know where to draw that line. So for example, uh, Nick, can I show you something, Nick, right now? Like, can I, like, we'll describe it to where the listeners will understand what's going on. This, this is a great example of how mentalists convince you that we're persuading you and stuff, but at the end of the day, it's just a trick. So um, Nick, I've got a framed photograph right over here and I'm going to show it to you. I want you to see it's a, it's a pocket watch. It's a photograph of a pocket watch framed inside an acrylic frame but you can't see what time that's on, correct? Yep. Okay, I'm going to turn it back this way like this. I'm going to hold it right here. Nick, I'm about to persuade your mind with my words. Woo! So I want you to imagine, um, I'll, I'll give you a clue. The big hand on this is pointing right to the 12. The small mm -hmm. hand is on one of the numbers. So this is an hour on the hour. Nick, look at me through the screen. I want you to imagine that uh, small hand going round and around, round and around, and it's gonna stop at some point. It's on a number. What number is it on, Nick? Mm, 
This is my favorite number, four. Your favorite number, but you never said that to me. I no. couldn't. Have, I couldn't have known that. No. Nick, I'm going to turn this photograph around. I want you to tell the listeners, because, you know, some people are just hearing this. They can't see it. Tell everyone exactly the time that is on this framed photograph. Shit. Yeah, that's four. <laughs> you can that see that, right? Four. Look, I want you to see that's like that's on there. That doesn't shift. It doesn't move. It doesn't like you could see right in there. It's just a framed photograph in this acrylic. And there's no way. Yeah, to, but like, what about those things on the side? You can move the clock with them. I want you to see that. Look, there's nothing. These are just screws. You could see them. They go right into the thing just to hold it, that that frame in place, right? Yeah, shit. And that's actually four o'clock. And this is what I'm talking about. A lot of people see this and they think to themselves like, oh, he uses gestures to influence. If you watch carefully, he was doing this with his fingers and uh, he slowed down here. And it's crazy how even when I say this is a trick, nothing about a trick. Go, yeah, yeah, it's a trick. He uses words. And it's, no, no, no. It's a trick. It's a simple trick. And mentalists do this kind of thing all the time. Or maybe you saw my football jersey because it's number four. Or maybe it's because I'm born on the 4th of November and we're connected. <laughs> I love it. That's a, that's, that's a wicked trick. That's a wicked trick. Thanks, buddy. That's, that's the problem. A lot of people have a hard time gauging What's real? So as much as I, so that's the thing I dislike about Patrick Jane. It's the fact that characters like that spread people, spread these beliefs in people that mentalists have these capacities. Um, what I love about Patrick Jane is what you said. If we let go of the accuracy of a mentalism and assume that above the abilities of a mentalist, he also has profiling skills, actual conversational persuasion skills, very, very advanced deductive reasoning, which to an extent that I haven't seen in my life, um, he is a very compelling and charismatic character. And yeah, mentalism and understanding psychology and body language will give you that to a certain extent, but his capacity with people is is right in the middle of the fiction area. Yeah, it's a, TV show. it's a TV show, but this is what I want to get into because people like you, the mentalist, and the, they seem like they're in touch with something else, but obviously, like you said, they're into profiling and, and all these other different things. And I want to try to teach the listeners some of this shit. How can I get like Patrick Jane or close to it? Right. Okay. So, so how can you actually develop those skills is what you're saying. So if we break down Patrick Jane into the different skill sets that make him, we have mentalism is definitely there. Mentalism as an art form, his background we find out in the show he was a carny, so he was doing parlor tricks in carnivals. So there is a lot of background there of magic and mentalism, which remember is all trickery. On top of that, he's very good at observing people, uh, deductive reasoning, and reading body language. That's a second skill set. The third skill set, he's very skilled at hypnosis, not just trance work, but conversational hypnosis as well. So NLP, persuasion, hypnosis, add all that. And then he's got insanely good deductive reasoning, which is a, it's a little bit of body language in that, but also just hard practice in doing that kind of thing. Oh, and also on top of all that, we'll add cold reading. Cold reading is part of mentalism, uh, but it, it, a good cold reader is goes above and beyond what mentalists do usually. So I think if you were to learn all those skills and be naturally very charismatic, you would come close to being a, a real-life Patrick Jane.
Okay, so that's a bunch of different skills to learn right there. Let's get into this practical value stuff. Um, you said NLP. I kind of want to start with that because I've heard a lot about it and you can kind of get into it with the, the self-guided hypnosis and, and similar things. But what is it really? I mean, it's kind of like a little niche cult following, isn't it? Yeah, I agree. Uh, NLP stands for Neuro Linguistic Programming. And basically, basically, if I had to define it, it's the linguistic part of persuasion. So instead of studying the science of persuasion and the different paths of persuasion, they look at specifically the language that you use to persuade people and put ideas in their head, whether it's to affect their emotions, their behaviors, or the outcome of the conversation you're having with them. And it's got a lot of really cool techniques in there. It's got some stuff in there that I don't necessarily agree with or don't believe is the strongest way to go about things, but it definitely has a lot of really, really strong techniques in there as well that come from the psychology world and that a psychologist would look at and go, yeah, that, that totally works. Here's why. Isn't that similar to politicians speaking at like a fifth grade level and using uh, words that emote emotion? Sure. Yeah. So, so that's one really strong uh, tip is to use words that are emotionally loaded. Often we speak and we don't vary the words that we use or the words that we use don't best represent the image that we're trying to create. And one of my favorite studies on this field was um, they basically showed a video of a car accident to a group of people. And they said, after the video was shown to this group of people, they asked them, how fast was the car going when it uh, when it bumped into the other car? And they got an answer. And then to another group, they said, how fast was the car going when it smashed into the other car? And the second group had significantly higher speeds than the first group because of the word that I, when I say bumped, when I'd say to you, a car bumped into my car, the image you have in your head is very different than if I say this car smashed into my car, crashed into my car, demolished my car. These all make different images in your head. And even if they had seen the exact same video, their perception and their recall of it was different because of the word that was used. And that's a great example of something that is from the psychology world, but somebody from NLP would tell you to use descriptive words that are in line with the image you're trying to create. Someone that's really influenced me has been Scott Adams, and he did a um, hypnotist class when he was younger. And this is when he said he realized a lot of people think humans are 90% rational and 10% irrational, but it's the opposite, isn't it? Absolutely, of course. If you look at the, what we call the neocortex, which is everything that is rational, uh, decision-making, thinking about things. That's the outer layer of the brain. It's about 10%, maybe a little bit more. But everything that you're doing in terms of emotion is inside that. It's the what we call the mammalian brain, which is the limbic system. And then at the core of that is your pure fight and flight reflex, which we refer to as the reptilian brain. But yeah, most of your brain is is doing things that you have no idea. It's This is why body language works, right? This is why we know how, what someone's feeling or what they're thinking or if they're being deceptive or the emotions that they're feeling based on body language. You're not consciously changing your face or your body language when you feel something. That's, that's insane. We don't know what we're doing. We don't know what we're gesturing. We don't know what our face is doing. So the reason we know things is because of what's happening subconsciously, not, not consciously. Yeah, a book you recommended to me that I have read was what everybody 
is saying by the famous FBI guy. And that's a lot of body language. That's like the body language peak book. What did you learn? What are the big lessons from that book that you got? I mean, listen, Joe Navarro is a, uh, is a beast when it comes to body language. And this is stuff that he's teaching you through hard experience, things that he's observed over decades of working as an FBI interrogator. So you're getting this from the best source possible. He also has a book called uh, Dictionary of Body Language, I believe it's called. And it's just like shorter form, sort of like you go to the head and it says if the head does this and if the head does that, all these different things. But what everybody is saying, and we're not mispronouncing that, it's purposely what everybody is saying, not what everybody is saying. Um he breaks down part by part all the different, you know, body parts and what they mean and what to look for, you know, and there's tons of great tips in there. It's hard for me to remember specifically what I learned from that book because it's hard, you know, how do you know where you learned addition? How do you know where you learned multiplication? You can't, you know, you just, it's things you know. But if I try to recall specific things from that book, oh, a really good one in there is the difference between when you ask someone a question and they say, I don't know, the difference between both shoulders going up and only one shoulder going up. So right now, as you look at me, Nick, if you ask me something and I might say, I don't know, or I might go, I don't know. That's a very different thing. If both shoulders go up pretty quick and come back down, I actually don't know. This happens when we don't know the answer. But if it's only one one shoulder that goes up and comes down, it's typically not necessarily deceptive, but I'm withholding information. There's more to more to the story than what I'm telling you. And then there's also the the speed at which it happens. Um, when shoulders go up and down quickly like this, like a sh- sort of like a shrug, it's actually not knowing something. If it happens a little bit slower and my head comes down, and Nick, you should you would know this better than anyone. When your when your O line is in front of you and they're in position, they go into this. What does this mean? This is defensive, right? You know what I mean? So this is protective. My, my head is down. My neck is tight in because I'm protecting my vitals. My shoulders are up. So when we're feeling stressed or you're feeling defensive or you're feeling attacked and you just sort of, you sort of want to disappear, but at the same time, this is a very defensive pose. So if the shoulders go up slowly and the head comes down like this, we call this turtling because it's literally like a turtle trying to retreat into the shell. So that's different than a fast one or different than just a one side. My favorite one and this helped me a lot in dating is the feet, where they're pointed. If they're pointed at at you or away, I mean, the feet say a shit ton because they're the farthest from the head, correct? Yeah, so so the farthest from the head isn't, you know, it's cute. It's a cute little fact. The reason the feet tell us a lot is this. When people are trying to be deceptive, our entire lives we've been taught to try to fake what we're feeling with our face, right? Like we say, like fake a smile, your poker face. We don't say your poker feet. We say your poker face, put on your poker face. Um, Make sure to smile, make sure to look them in the eye. These are the tips we give them, but nobody ever talks about the legs and the feet. So we're not trained when we're being deceptive about something. We're trained to change our face. We're trained to sometimes change our hands, be more relaxed with our arms, with our body language, but we rarely think about our feet. And what you said is absolutely correct. The feet point to where our interest lies. And there's a very simple evolutionary reason for this. And it's very easy to understand. When I'm in fight or flight response, if I need to get away from something, my feet need to point in the direction that I'm going to run. So my feet are getting ready to get the heck out of there. So if something is annoying, threatening, stressful, my feet are pointing away as a sign that I'm subconsciously trying to get away from this. Whereas if it's pointing towards you, 
it's my interest lies in this direction. Also, you can look for something called gravity defying movements, which is anything where the feet are now there's nervous tapping, which is more like a tap, 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 tap. It's faster. And then there's sort of like this more rhythmic, almost like you're dancing. They're moving left to right a little, like hap, they're called happy feet. The feet go up and down, the toes go up and down, the heels go up and down, like you're tapping to music. This is when we're happy, we're giddy, we're excited. So there's a slight difference there. One is more jittery. One is a little bit more excited, happy, fun, and they mean different things. Uh, if people keep their toes up, if you're talking to someone and their toes are up, only the back of the foot is down, this is also a good sign. Again, it's like they're subconsciously jumping for joy, but also they're very comfortable because if I wasn't comfortable, think about it. I'd want both feet flat on the ground because I'm ready to run. I want to get the heck out of here. But if one foot's off the ground, or both feet are off the ground, it means I'm comfortable here. I'm not thinking to run away. Well, good news. My feet are like this. My, my heels on the ground, my toes are up. Sweet, pointing straight to Canada. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there like a class to take on this? Because I think it's repetition, right? You, you see different experiences with it like Joe. Um, should we go on YouTube or what's a good way to learn this body language skill that, I mean, what is the, the real stat? Someone said 90% or 75% of communication is body language. Mm -hmm. there's, a popular, there's a popular thing that says 93% of uh, communication is nonverbal. Nonverbal meaning body language, the tonality of what you're saying without necessarily looking at the, the words. Uh, yeah, what you project. I don't know. I haven't done the research or looked into exactly what the number is on that, but that makes sense to me. It makes sense to me that more or less 10 to 15% of what you say comes out of your mouth. The rest is all what you convey with the body. I love it. Um, oh, we're kind of sorry, sorry, sorry. Let me answer where to learn this stuff. So yeah. listen, there's a lot of really good books on this. I'm a reader. I love this stuff. Um, there are a lot of online courses and there's a lot of great ones. And, and listen, Here's what I'm going to advise. If you guys look into a course online to learn body language, just look at the experience of the teacher, not experience as a teacher, but experience in the field. What, where is this information coming from? So for example, I have a YouTube channel. On my YouTube channel, we talk about persuasion. We talk about um, deception. We talk about how to catch a liar. Where You're learning this from a guy who has been a hypnotist and a mentalist, um, a presenter, a speaker with a degree in social psychology who's done who's done this stuff for over a decade so i think that's pretty good i think when it comes to like pop psychology i'm a pretty good source i understand myself and of course i you know it's ironic because earlier i said mentalists don't know real psychology but very few do and we use it in our craft and those guys will typically be better than the guys who only know the tricks side of things now um there's also a lot of courses by guys who did stuff for intelligence agencies law enforcement, military. That's the kind of people you want to learn this stuff from because they learned out of a need to survive and that's the best place you can learn this from. And, and those are people that I look up to as well. Uh, yeah, books, you know, are always great, but nothing will be practiced. Get out there, you know, and just observe people, talk to people, communicate with people, see what you observe, look at the patterns you observe, get, get the books, read the stuff, but then go out and actually try it. Most people know... Posture is very related to confidence. One of my favorite um, kind of body language things to do that I learned from Sanjeev Chopra. It's Deepak's brother. He's like a world famous uh, yep. doctor, author, mm -hmm. speaker. He goes on the stage 
and he puts his hands up like this and yells, yes, 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 15 times. And then he feels super confident and he gives a speech. What do you think of that? He's doing this in front of the audience? Normally in the bathroom, but one time he said he could do it. Um, he didn't have time, so he did it right before his speech. Everyone's like, what was that? But they were like, this is super cool. So so he's putting his hands up. Now, is this when he gets on stage, his hands are up, or he's doing it backstage to prime himself and get himself in the right mode? The backstage, but he did it once on stage because he didn't have time to do it backstage. Right. So, so I see advantages to both. First of all, putting people in a yes frame or in a yes mind pattern is always a good thing. Um, always, you know, I always push getting people in a positive mood. So telling people, yes, yes, yes. Although it sounds a little weird. I could see how that would have its benefits. Um, putting the hands up like that, that must be something for him that, that psychs him up. We all have our own little things. You know, we all have our own little things. Our body works in different ways. And when you find the thing that gets you pumped and gets you excited and you could do a bit of meditation, a bit of self-exploration to find what that is, you are going to be more effective because you can manipulate the states that you're in. When it's time to be excited, you could channel that. When it's time to be uh, serious, you could channel that. When it's time to be focused, you could channel that. So to me, that sounds like an exercise for him to channel his excitement and positivity. And I love that. Well, isn't it too, when you're excited, I mean, if you score a touchdown, a goal, people put their hands up. I mean, sure. it's a pretty undefensive position. So you should be pretty confident doing it. I mean, isn't that a body language thing when your hands are up in the air like that? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, op the, the, the number one thing for confidence with the body is openness, anything that's open, like you said, so nothing blocking you. So yeah, if you're talking to someone, their arms are open like this, accepting this is quite confident. Yes, you're right, though. Hands up like this. What do we do when uh, cops are around? And you know, there's danger, you put your hands up, you show, you show the wrists, first of all, you expose the wrists. This is like, I'm, I'm not dangerous. You show your hands are empty. So yes, having an open body language, is confident. Well, I mean, it's confident. It's not so much confident as much as it's non-threatening. You know what I mean? Anything where you're open is like, I'm not a threat when you show the wrist like that. Hands up, typically I associate this to excitement, right? Like exactly like you said, when somebody put, you know, scores a goal, scores a touchdown, our reflex is to raise our hands and go, what? Yes, yay. Like we celebrate like this, right? Our hands go up and we celebrate. It's again, anti-gravity. You're trying to fly. You're jumping for joy. Upwards motions are excitement. So I think it's a mix for him of, of confidence and excitement. Hot and cold reading. I think you were kind of doing this to me on Instagram. Can you explain <laughs> um, hot and cold reading and how maybe a listener could get into it? Sure, yeah. So I don't believe in cold reading at all because cold reading, unless you're talking to someone over the phone and you have zero information on them, I don't think cold reading exists in our society because now we have video calls and we have in-person communication. So let me first of all, define the difference. Cold reading is giving someone a reading, having zero information about them. So it's a mix of well-timed questions, assumptions, and uh, what we call Barnum statements, which are very sort of vague statements that apply to a lot of people, along with other techniques uh, that are ambiguous, but then zero in on things and then questions that give us information that we build on. And, and, and then you start observing. So cold reading is giving someone a reading based on nothing. Hot reading or warm reading is giving someone a reading based on some information that you have and elaborating on that information. So nowadays with a quick Facebook search, I could know a thousand things about someone, what they do, what their passions are, what they do on weekends, who they hang out with. They love animals. They love art. 
what they do for work, you know, all these things. And that gives you so much information. Um, for example, when we spoke, you know, I asked you what your passion is. You said football and you're a quarterback. Well, that, that tells me a lot about someone. Just that one little fact tells you a lot about someone. It tells you, first of all, the fact that you were drawn to athletics, but you run a podcast that is more about personal development tells me that you're a well-rounded person, that your physical health is very important for you, but so is your emotional and psychological health. Um, that's so professionally you were drawn to something that's athletic, but your interests are also in personal growth. So being in shape both physically and mentally is important to you. But then we look at the specific role quarterback. Now I don't know much about football, but I do know that the quarterback leads the team. So that's a natural leadership um, tendency. Uh, but also a quarterback, I'm assuming, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong. Cause I don't want to be, I don't want to fault the Dunning Kruger thing I was talking about earlier. I would assume that a quarterback is also very aware. You have to know where all your players are because if you're not aware of that, you know, uh, defensive team coming at you, you're going down. You got to be aware of them. You got to be aware of your receivers know where they are. You got to know where your running back is because you might have to, you know, get the ball over to him. So you're very aware. Also, you probably perform well under stress. In fact, some people under stress perform better. I would assume that's the case with you as well because you have screaming fans in the stands, the pressure's on, you got to make quick decisions. Um, probably a bit of a risk taker, you know, uh, so th these are all things I could tell. And in, in a reading situation, I wouldn't just blurt all that out. It would be in a situation where I would, I would drop little nuggets, like one little thing, see how you take that, look at your reaction and go from there. Yes. Cause the hot reading is what all the psychics do. Correct. Psychics do a mix of both. So when you sit down in front of them, some of them will just go into their cold reading script, which is the same they do for everyone. And from there, they very do generalized. It's, it's, it's a lot of generalized statements, but also a lot of statements that set, like they're very good at manipulating words to make it, to make it like the statement could mean many things depending on how the listener interprets it. You know what I mean? So, um, so yeah. So they'll do that kind of thing. And then, yes, as they're talking to you, they zero in by looking at your reactions and then they ask questions to which you give the answers and the way you answer them gives them more information to keep going. And they just keep building on that. I mean, how do you learn those those hot reading skills, though, and, and to go off one thing and to take one question and, and generalize from there? Because, I mean, for the most part, a lot of people buy into it. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, I mean, I good communication skills. You, mm -hmm. you sound like you're smart. Yeah, uh, you do, except for when, when you do it to really intellectual people and they see through your crap, it could backfire. So do I use it a lot in real world? I don't. Uh, I, I'm going to use more more real or substantial techniques, but I do use it a lot in performance. Um, I, I would write, see, here's the thing. Some people are naturally really good at cold reading because or, or hot reading because they're very intuitive and they just notice things about people. And if you're one of those types of people, I don't need to tell you how to do it. You've been doing it your entire life. There are good books on it. I'll recommend one. Um, let me just make sure I got the whole title right. It is called The Full Facts Book of Cold Reading by Ian Rowland. Okay. It's a great book great great but he's a mentalist um and this just has everything on it like literally how 
to script your cold read, what to look for, what to say. Um, you know, cold reads also have a lot of guesses in it where somebody throws – for example, Nick, if I was doing a read for you and I, I were to have you to you know think of a – because basically these psychics pretend like they're getting these thoughts, right? And so, Nick, if they were to say to you something like, um, I'm getting a recent memory from you, uh, and, and they might throw out something like, I'm seeing a lot of green around you. There's like a lot of, I'm getting this color green that I'm seeing. And so here's the thing. Th your mind is going to interpret that a certain way. You might think back, what, what, what the hell happened recently that was green? And you might think of the football field, right? That's what I'm going for. A football player, you know, plays on a field. Or you might think of a party you went to and somebody was wearing a green shirt. I'm not giving you anything specific. I'm just saying, I'm getting this memory now. Somebody's showing me something green. What is that? And And I wait for you to go, Dollars, oh, yeah. money. Money, dollars, right? So that's what your mind did with that. So you go, you know what? It's crazy because I was recently thinking about this green. And I go, right, right. That's what I think I was getting. And I elaborate on that. Even if I didn't say it, I'll get credit for having gotten that thought from you. This kind of goes into the, instead of small talk, building that deep rapport, right? Because you yes. take something and you go deep into it and oh, your past and, and whatnot. Can you speak on how, you know, in your everyday life, you can quit the small talk and get right into the interesting stuff? Yes, sir. So the the thing about small talk is that it's most people's comfort zone, right? What do you do? How do you live? You know, all this stuff. But but what do you do? It doesn't give me much about you. It tells me what you do for money, what you do for work. Think about what – like now you, you and I are – part of a privileged few who get to live off our passions, right? And that's awesome. And I encourage everybody to try to pursue that. But a lot of people in this world, what they do for work has nothing to do with who they are. It's what they do to make money to sustain themselves and their families. So if I, if I say to someone, what do you do? The states I'm eliciting could be stressed because they're now thinking about their work and all this kind of stuff. So let me, t let me give you guys some quick tips on how to get into conversations that are actually fun, deep, and that people want to talk about more than what they do or what you do or what, what – I hate that. It's such a common – what do you do? Like it's such a common thing we ask. I hate it. So here are a couple of really easy conversations to sort of flow into. There are three topics of conversations that I found in my work that anyone on this planet that you meet – is going to love to talk to you about one of these three things or is passionately going to talk to you about one of these three things. And most people will love to talk about two of these things and some people would love to talk about any of these three things. And here they are. These are the three topics. Topic number one is um, sexuality and relationships. And that I put that on a, on a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, we have relationships. On the other end of the spectrum, we have sexuality. The further you could slide down that scale towards sexuality, the deeper the conversation, the deeper the connection. We talk about sexuality to people that we're connected to, that we trust. But everyone loves to talk about relationships and dating and connections between people. And everyone likes to think they give really good advice about this kind of stuff. And we feel validated when we give people advice about this kind of stuff. So this is a topic that is interesting to almost anyone. You, you could basically go up to any stranger in the street, ask them for relationship advice, and most people will really get into that conversation because we love to talk about that kind of stuff. Um, now, Certain men, you can a lot faster go towards that sexuality and they'll be more interested in talking about that because men are used to talking about, like when we're with the boys, we're hanging out with the guys, we talk about sexuality. It's, it's a lot less taboo for us. Some women as well, 
But typically you would want to gauge that, especially if you're a man talking to a woman. And I, I, I am a huge advocate for gender equality, obviously, but there are just certain things, generally speaking, of course, there's exceptions to every rule that appeals to different genders because of, you know, biology and the way we evolved. One thing, one thing, one thing, this is a hundred percent correct. It's weird when you're talking with a girl and you get her to the open up and let her guard down about sexual things. It usually means it's over. Like the rapport is really deep because she's not used to, you know, she's used to a lot of people judging them about their sexual stuff. And absolutely. When you, when you can open up about that, it's like yeah. you're connected. Yeah, absolutely. The only thing I would amend about that, Nick, is to say 100%. I don't think in today's society anything is 100%. And I have met women that are very sexually open and, and within minutes are comfortably talking about, you know, who they did what with. And, and that's just the language they speak. And that's totally fine. And there are men like me who prefer to talk about relationships and connection rather than sexuality. Actually, I'll talk about either one. I don't care. I'm a chatterbox. So, um, but yeah, these are topics that are interesting and you can gauge on that scale where you're the person you're talking to finds their comfort, but you are generally speaking, you're right. If you can get uh, a woman to open up about that because there is a lot of stigma in our society aimed at women and sexuality. And it's unfortunate. I hope it changes, but, but for now it's still there. Um, the second topic is uh, possessions and accomplishments. Now this is for a specific type of person. If you observe someone that you're talking to and you can see this from across the bar is um, pays a lot of attention to what they put off and the way they look. Usually people with interesting jewelry, uh, interesting piercings, tattoos. Uh, yeah, I know, Nick, I was going to say one of them. Um, this is someone that if you encourage them to talk to you about the things that they've accomplished in life and the things they, they have that mean something to them, they'll happily talk to you about that. They'll talk to you about the things they've done and they'll talk to you about their journey and they've talked to you about their accomplishments happily. And Nick, you're one of those people um, that call that a hot read. <laughs> Finally, the third topic is travel and experiences. So this is different than the second one in that it's not so much about hard accomplishments. Like, you know, I got this award and I, I was, you know, I, I accomplished this. More about what they've experienced, culinary, travel, what they've seen, what they've learned. And this is such a great opportunity to not get to know someone only, but to get them emotional and, and to get them to implicit excitement. Ask them about what the most exciting um, restaurant they've been to is, or the most exciting destination they've traveled to, or where they want to travel to. Talk about ambition. So these are all really emotional conversations. One last tip for building quick rapport. There's something called, I came up with this, I call these jump starters, Spidey's jump starters. And this is, this is a formula for a sentence that will immediately give you interesting conversation. And the formula is this. If you could blank any blank, why, when, how, what, where would it be? So let me give you an example. If you could revisit any memory from your life, where would you go? Why? Um, if you could have dinner with any person, living or dead, who would it be? Why? If you can um, visit any country on this planet, where would you go? Why? If you could, if if you could be something in this world, anything at all. I'm not just talking about a job. If you could be anything on this planet without any chance of failure, what would you be and why? So these are all really interesting questions that get people emotional, uh, connected. These are these are fun conversations rather than what do you do? Where do you live? Where did you grow up? You know, it's it's just so much deeper. I think social skills and communication skills are probably the most um, under 
studied and underpracticed skills people have. And the people that do them, you know, go places. They always say it's about who you know and, and whatnot. But I think it's so true that we don't study this, you know, unless you do it on your own. I absolutely agree. I think, and it's unfortunate that it's understudied. I, th I think there's two reasons it's understudied. One, it's because it's not like a hard science. You know, we're like with physics, we what we observe, we know to be true. So, so I feel like a lot of people who are more in the tangible space in their mind are more interested in things like that. The second reason is a lot of people think that they already know a whole lot about psychology. But the interesting thing is, unless the person you're talking to is very well-read and well-researched, the stuff they're throwing at you, I would say 50%, and that's being generous, is accurate. The rest is all pop crap they read in blogs or things that, you know, just don't really... On Reddit or Twitter. Yeah, yeah the Facebook, you know. I think learning these and, you know, becoming good at them is like a hack in the matrix. I think some crazy shit happens when you can just go up to someone and say, hey, you know, I really like that hat. It reminds me of the fedora I used to rock in Mexico or something like that. And then start a deep conversation. And maybe this person invites you on a yacht in Tampa Bay during the Super Bowl. That's what Absolutely. happened to me. But I think, awesome. it's, I think it's a like once you get these or you try working on them, like all these opportunities open up. Like you're, the world's a playground. Absolutely. And and you gotta you gotta dabble responsibly. I think the the most important oath that you can take when you're gonna study this stuff is leave people better off than when they met you. And that's very important to me. I will never use you know, people say how you know this stuff is stuff is manipulation. You're teaching people manipulation. I'm not teaching people manipulation. Manipulation and persuasion are two different things. And let me explain the difference between manipulation and persuasion. This is very important. With with manipulation. One party gains at the deficit of the other party. Do you understand what that means? So with manipulation, I get my way, but you lose. With persuasion, that's not the case. With persuasion, both parties gain. So yeah, if I go into a store and I use a bit of persuasion to get a discount, there's no victim there. You know what I mean? There's no real victim. I, I'm benefiting. The other, fine, the other person's not benefiting, but they're not losing either. Um you know, if you, but basically at the end of the day, I use persuasion in conversations to give people better experiences. I don't manipulate. I don't do it to take things from people. Um, yeah, I have a couple of YouTube videos where I demonstrate things that are a little bit more on the naughty side. And I do apologize for that. It's just, I, I just want to show people how powerful persuasion can be. But um, you, the oath needs to be to always leave people in a better place than where you found them. Let's really get into this persuasion because it's one of my favorite things to study, to, to learn about. Like I said before, everyone thinks they're so rational, but most of us, you know, we're pretty much irrational a lot of the time. And persuasion is a way to kind of like see through the bullshit, see behind the curtain, huh? Absolutely. You know, it's, it's what you're saying is accurate that people think oh, I'm rational. That would never work on me. You know, they read studies. They read these studies of, with like 97% accuracy. Oh, that wouldn't work on me. Yeah, what are you saying wouldn't work on you because you just read what it was. But if you're out there doing it, this would absolutely work on you. And th this is proof. Like, don't be an arrogant idiot. If it worked on 97% of people on a study that was done over tens of thousands of people, it would probably work on you. You're not that special. <laughs> well, there's a reason that the marketing is a trillion-dollar industry. I mean, it absolutely. works. People of think course. it don't, but it works. Of course it works. We know it works. The studies are out there to show it works.
And that really gets into the subconscious too. You know, the, 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 the ads you see in the phones or just walking by and you think you don't see it, but it's dug deep down. How important is the subconscious and persuasion? Are they intertwined? It's the same. I mean, it's the persuasion speaks to the subconscious, right? Because, because if I tell you things consciously trying to convince you, that's what it is attempts to convince. But if, if I speak in ways and change my language and change the, what I'm using to persuade you, I'm, I'm speaking directly to your subconscious, which is making your decisions. Can you give me some examples of key persuasion? Absolutely. I could talk about this for hours. So let's talk about a few of my favorites. Um, Oh, you know what? So I'm going to throw a couple of my favorite studies at you and then tell you what 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 they were, what they found, what we learned, and how you can use it. So, ah, ooh, such a such a fun grab bag. Let's start with the petrified wood study. One of my favesies. So you guys could look this up. It's called the petrified wood study. Wood as in W O O D. So there was a a natural landmark in America. It was called the petrified forest, and I, I don't know where it was. So I'm going to Google it because I don't want to. I'm a big I'm a big fan of accuracy because we're living in a in a world of ignorance. So petrified. Uh, and what's trippy about that, you say, is like you see a Reddit post or you see a social media post and you know consciously that hey, this is probably BS, but subconsciously I think your brain doesn't know the difference. And maybe you take it in as face value. It's not that your brain doesn't know the difference, it's that you read it. And then later on, it comes up and you go, I read this somewhere, not remembering whether it was you read it in a book or by some ding dong on Reddit. You know what I mean? So this is why I'm really against um, un- – so I'm against people that are not experts in a field talking about that field. I hate that. Uh, like earlier you asked – you know, we talked about what we were going to discuss on the on this interview. And there's a few things you said and I told you, you know, I, that's not my thing. Here's, here's, what, I, here's what I do want to talk about because – I'm qualified to because when people and it happens in psychology all the time. People are like, oh no, it's you know, people blink more when they lie, or people people cross their arms when they lie. And it's like, why? Because because you watch that on a TV show. Um, there's so much more to it than that. So okay, Petrified Forest is in it's a national park in Arizona. So the Petrified Wood study was this. In this national park, so what is the petrified forest? Basically, um, some ash settled on this forest from a volcanic eruption. And everything is sort of petrified, covered in ash. And it kind of fossilizes in ash. And at some point, they noticed that there was theft happening. So a lot of people would come and they would pick up little wood chips that were covered in ash as a little souvenir, right? And so they wanted to reduce the theft. So they put up a sign saying, there have been high theft rates. Please don't steal. But it was very ineffective. It wasn't working. So they called in the experts, the social psychologists, the manipulators. And I say that very sarcastically because it's not what they are to come in and sort of help them figure this out because soon enough, there would be no landmark left if everybody left with a little bit of things. So what the social psychologists did is this, they divided the park into three parts. And in one part, they didn't put any signs because they wanted to see what the natural theft rate is if you don't tell people what to do. In the second part, they put the sign that the park had put up. There's been a high level of theft. Do not steal. And in the third part of the park, they put a sign that said, do not steal. That's it. Just don't steal. No no precursor to that. What they found was this. 
I don't remember the exact percentages. You guys can look this up. I, I would have to be a computer to remember the exact numbers on this, but it's in the, th- the theft rate to begin with was somewhere in the three point something percent area. So three point something percent of people were taking these wood chips. The sign that said, don't steal, flat out, don't steal, reduced it by about half. So about 1.5 or something like that, something in that area, maybe 1.7, I don't know. What's interesting is this. Here's where it got really interesting, Nick. The sign that said, there's been a high theft rate, do not steal, please, more than doubled the theft rate. It was anti-productive. It was counterproductive. And the reason for that is this, social proof. We behave the way people around us behave. We give people cues on how to behave by telling them what other people did. If you look at Amazon, you go try to buy something. Amazon's choice, bestseller, right? Um, McDonald's, one billion sold. Over, under every McDonald's site, there's over one billion served. We tell people what others are doing to tell them what to do. Nick, if you came into my store and I sell what I don't care, whatever. I sell sports merch and you ask me about what, what's something what's like you wear gloves, quarterback gloves, a helmet, a helmet. You ask me about a helmet and I, and I show you one and I say, I recommend this one versus this other one. I say, you know what? The last 20 quarterbacks who came in here, they bought this one. I haven't had one return on it. Which one's more compelling? Obviously, that second one, right? Because you go, oh, other quarterbacks are getting this one. Other quarterbacks are happy with this. That's the one I want. We, t- But here's the thing. The Petrified Wood um, story told us, or not the study told us, it also works when you tell people what others are doing wrong. So I've, I've seen a lot of guys, and Nick, I know you're interested in the whole dating um, you know, thing. I've seen a lot of guys... They come to me and they can't figure out why they're on this streak of hell. Like they haven't, you know, met a girl with romantic interest in months, years. And then you look at the way they talk and they say that. They like they say to the women that they're talking to that, you know, oh, I've been I've been single for three years. Well, what the hell are you communicating when you say that? I'm not saying lie about it. I'm not saying, you know, I just broke up with my girlfriend two days ago. But what Nick, you tell me. You're you're talking to let's say a girl's talking to a guy and it's going well, you know, good vibes, maybe not great, but decent vibes. And he goes, yeah, I've been, I've been, I haven't been on a date in three years. What is he communicating? No social proof. And the other women don't like him. Womp womp. You're basically just revealing. You're saying to someone that this isn't something people want, you know, whereas if you project confidence and, you know, you have a lifestyle where you're surrounded by people and you're liked and, you know, you don't have to say it in your conversation, like, oh, I'm, I'm so popular, but if it's implied or if it's shown or if it's seen, you know, social media, when, when you meet someone, whether it's for networking, whether it's for romantic, um, per, you know, uh, sort of direction, if they go on your social media and they see pictures of you alone, you know, at home with a, with a drink, that projects something very different than if they go and they see you uh, you're in Mexico on a yacht surrounded by attractive people or you're um, in, in a conference room surrounded by everyone's having a good time around you. We tell people subconsciously who we are with with things like this because we tell them how others around us treat us. And you could tell a lot by per, about a person by the way people around them treat them. Yeah, that's why Instagram is so powerful. It is crazy. But this is dug down deep into our 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 being because, you know, in the past, the mental bandwidth to figure out all these decisions. It's much easier. Oh, everyone's doing this. I'm going to survive. 
So boom, do it. I don't have to think about it. Is that kind of where it goes? Of course, absolutely. We don't need to. You don't need to overthink it. You, when we see a lot of people doing something, whether you like it or not, the studies are there. Countless studies. It's not just a petrified wood. There's a lot of studies that prove this. When you are told what people like you specifically like you, it works better if it's people like you. Same demographic. When we know what people like us are doing, we tend to do the same. And the way you can use this in your day to day life is let's say you're a salesman and you sell something and a young couple comes in and they're looking at something. Tell them about the last couple. Tell them what the last young couple like them bought and we're very happy with. So say, it's so funny, you know, like they're looking, you're a car salesman. They're looking at a car. So you say something like, it's so funny. A young couple like you came in just last month, bought this same car. I heard back from them a little while later. They are loving it. They said it was perfect for whatever. So tell people what people like them are doing. Uh, there's another great thing in marketing about this where infomercials in the, in the 80s and early 90s, if you listen to infomercials, there was a very famous line at the end of the infomercial that said, call now, operators are waiting. It was a very famous line in infomercials. Sometime in the 90s, I believe, early 90s, they, uh, a marketing expert came in on a campaign, changed it, and changed the entire world of marketing. Not only did they change the line, they changed it to the exact opposite. It went from call now, operators are waiting, to call now if the line is busy, call back later. And if you think about that, it sounds very inconvenient, doesn't it? To say to someone, call now, but if we don't answer, call back later. Like if you think about the conscious, you go, that's stupid, but it worked. It worked really well. And Nick, you're a smart guy. Why did it work? Because they thought other people were calling. It's a hot uh, product and everyone wants it. Bingo, bango, my friend. This is why, this is why. This is why you do the interviews. Um, hey, well, let me add something quick to go back on the point about the dude saying that he's been single for three years. And this goes into persuasion as a whole. And it seems like super counterintuitive to what we've been taught. But for example, I kind of live a different lifestyle when it relates to relationships. I've spoken on it a couple of times, but I don't want to get too into it. But I kind of do open relationships because of the traveling, right? And when this gets brought up, when I'm with a female, usually you think, that, oh my God, like he's a player or this and that. And I, I wouldn't think that at all. I'm going to tell you before you even said, I'm going to tell you exactly what the reaction is. Curiosity and more questions. And they're more attracted. It's yep. it's weird, but it's... No, I'm going to tell persuasion. you why. I'm going to, no, no, no. I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you why it's not weird. It's because the where it comes from isn't creepy. Women are highly empathetic and highly uh, they, they connect very well. And if it's coming from a creepy place, like if if this creepy weird guy went up to them and said, "I like open relationships. I don't believe in exclusivity," they, it's just weird. But the way you bring it up, it's a lifestyle. It's your life. It's what you're about. And it's also like you're not trying to be deceptive about it. You're not telling her like, "Let's hook up." My girlfriend's at home. She doesn't know I'm here. That's not what it is. It's no, this is my lifestyle. I've got other, I've got women in my life. I look for non-exclusive relationships. And I would assume that to a lot of women, at the very least, there's curiosity. They're going to ask you about, oh, how do you handle that? And don't your girlfriends get jealous and all this stuff? They're going to try to figure out. And if you're treating her with respect and that's something she's interested in exploring, I totally believe that that works out really, really well. But what we've been taught, it's just counterintuitive. And I think persuasion as a whole is just counterintuitive, isn't it? It absolutely is. Because biologically, here's the thing. Biologically, 
our need is to survive, right? Every human on the planet, our need is to serve. We have two basic needs. One is to survive. That's the biggest one. And two is for our genes to survive, to genetically survive, for our children to survive. Now, that means the same thing to men and women. But because of our biology and the way babies are born, it changes something in practice. Here's what it changes. For a man to assure his genes to survive, his best plan would be to sleep with a whole bunch of women, impregnate them all, and play a numbers game. A lot of those babies are going to survive. But to a woman, let's go back to caveman times. If I was a caveman and I went and had babies with multiple women, those kids were probably going to survive, or some of them would. That's a way to guarantee that my genes is going to go on. Some of them might not, but some of them will. It's a numbers game. But the woman, she's the one who's going to carry that baby, give birth to it, feed it. She has a responsibility. She needs to find someone who's going to secure her when those dangerous animals come, when other cavemen come. When other, she needs someone there to protect her from that. And we're talking, this is this is tens of thousands, hundreds Millions. of thousands of years. Billions, yeah, whatever, years of evolution. So basically, genetically, and, and did that change? That didn't change. That changed in the last decade, two decades maybe. But even in medieval times, even in Renaissance times, even in historic times, this is the way it was. The women carried the babies, raised the children. This is why they became very good, by the way, at connecting with people because when you have a baby who can't tell you what it wants, you connect with it to understand what it needs. So women became more empathetic, more connected throughout this evolutionary process, but also they feel like exclusive, um, exclusivity and having one man assures their security. Right In today's society, that's not true anymore. But like you said, we can't rationalize that. Some people can. They can say, I don't need that. I'm going to go get in vitro. I'm going to adopt. And that's fine. Some women do that and all power to them. But we're talking about evolution, the way our mind works. So yeah, men tend to have that sort of um, more less exclusive vibe and, and women want that exclusivity. Now, of course, there's exceptions to every rule. I love monogamy. <laughs> I love it. I would marry it. So um, yeah. yeah. This see, this this is the, the weird waters here. And this is space that I freaking love because it's so interesting. But a lot of people can't handle it because I think – we were fed this Disney fairy tale about how things should be. I think they put the church in place to make society function so every man could have a partner and they could be good little worker bees and you know not well, go crazy. But throughout time, there was it was said that for every man, um, 17 women produced for them. You know what I mean? Like the 80-20 rule about the alpha, you know, the big dog was you know populating the world. Genghis Khan is mm -hmm. one in every 200 men, you know, blood. But this is like, okay, quote unquote, the red pill, that whole space. But it's hard to talk about because everyone, I think, shuts down. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, we all have our preconceived notions and the way we think things should be. And I think at the end of the day, you have to be respectful about it and respect everyone's opinion. There, The only thing I think needs to exist in every relationship is honesty. I don't care if you're messing around with 50 women, as long as each of those 50 women know what's happening. It's important. It's got to be that way. So I... I don't, if I meet a guy and he tells me he's got, you know, six girlfriends, my only question is, do they all know about each other? And besides, I don't care. Do they have a relationship with each other? Do they sleep with other men? Uh, are they all exclusive to you? None of that matters. Do they all know and are they all okay with it? Are all their hearts protected in this relationship? I don't like sleaze bags. I don't like guys who lie to women. I don't like women who lie to guys. Um, 
dishonesty is 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 disgusting and maybe well, it's because you know i do it a lot on stage like i lie a lot when i do magic so i've just kind of gotten sick and tired of it i just don't like dishonesty well it goes back to what you talked about manipulation and persuasion uh, the manipulation yeah. someone's winning someone's losing persuasion maybe both parties can win but let's let's get back on this persuasion topic mm -hmm. the famous um the godfather of persuasion i can never say his name Cialdini. cialdini Cialdini, Cialdini. I Come on, man. You live, in, you live in Italy. I know, I know. I'm, and I know six Italian words, but this dude, and one of his things is social proof, right? Then there's the authority, which we kind of hit on about reading something online or listening to a podcast. You're already given a little authority subconsciously because mm -hmm. you're listening to us. Mm -hmm. And uh, what other, um, the, the six of them, so his persuasion. So Cialdini's pillars actually so so i do i do agree with you that the guy's a boss when it comes to persuasion and um he talks about a lot of different pillars of persuasion and um he's predated though he's predated and now the, the interesting thing is the petrified wood study i think was his study i'm just going to look it up to make 100 sure petrified wood study uh, da, 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 the petrified wood study. Da, 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 da. Who did it? Who did it? Give me a name. Give me a name. Give me a name. Psychology Today. Oh, come on, come on. If I had to guess, I would say he had someone to do with it. Cialdini. Yes. Yeah. Robert Cialdini is the one. What else was this? I believe it was in his book, and this is the famous book, Influence, Influence. the Psychology of Persuasion. Great book. Yeah, Cialdini and his team. So he did the Petrified Woods st study. He also did a lot of studies on social uh, proof in hotel rooms with the, getting people to reuse their towels. A lot of really interesting stuff in there. Now, Cialdini is the, the modern godfather of persuasion. I love his work, but he's predated by centuries. Who You may not know this, Nick. I'll ask you. You get bonus points if you know. Who is the first person who wrote about persuasion? Any idea? The Prince, um, Machiavelli, no? Aristotle, ancient Greece. So Aristotle talked about persuasion. He talked about, and, and you're going to see how crazy it is, the similarities between him and Cialdini. He talked about the four pillars of persuasion, the four types of persuasion. And they were, in Greek, ethos, logos, pathos, keros. And what that means is ethos is character, persuasion through character, through who you are, charisma, authority. So you are likely to persuade someone if they believe that you have authority on what it is you're talking about. Now, I love, I love Aristotle's stuff because if it was true hundreds of years ago, it's still true today. You know what I mean? We evolved I think the best way to study persuasion is to go as far back as we can because that's in the deepest parts of our minds. So first one, uh, ethos, character. Second, logos, logic, persuasion through logic. So if I could show you data, stats, um, to a certain degree, social proof as well, because if I tell you 99% of people did this, this is hard fact, and that persuades us, or so Aristotle thought. I agree. The third one is pathos. Pathos, if you look at path, pathology, um, psychopathy, path means uh, emotions. So uh, persuasion through emotion. Now that's a very dangerous field because if you are going to get someone to do something because they're emotionally, you've emotionally gotten them to a place where they're going to do it, 
unless you're being very delicate, that can dance on the line of manipulation. And I'm against that. I don't like that. So uh, you got to be careful with that. You got to be careful with the pathos. And then Keros is a really interesting one. It is persuasion based on the now, on times. And I can explain this to you in one sentence. I would have a lot more ease selling hand sanitizer to you in 2020 than 2019. What's happening now? What's trending now? So, and that's, if you look at social media trends, if you look at TikTok, it is a Keros based social platform. It's fascinating. That is fascinating. Um, do the ends ever justify the means when it relates to persuasion and manipulation? Not if the ends are, are, are hurtful to anybody at all. But what if the means are hurtful, but the ends are good? That's fine. Sometimes in therapy, we have to have people relive negative things in order to deal with them, but to come out more positively. If your ends are positive, do the ends justify the means? Yes. If the ends are positive, it's okay for the means. Again, please take this with a grain of salt. Like if you know what you're doing, I think it's okay if you're using negativity on the path to positivity. Okay. Um, Cialdini. Okay. Say it again. One more time. I can't fucking say it. Cialdini. Cialdini. Okay. Reciprocity. Reciprocity. Love reciprocity. So reciprocity is probably one of my favorites. So do you have the list in front of, in front of you? Don't, don't tell me what they are, but you have it. How many are there? Six. Let me try to see if I get all six. I don't think I can. Reciprocity. Social proof, um, commitment. Is that there? Scarcity is number two. No, no, don't say, don't say, don't say. I want to get them. I would have said scarcity next. Look at the whole list. Is commitment not there? Yep, it is. Okay, commitment. So hold on. Reciprocity, social proof, scarcity, commitment. Um, is labeling there? Liking. Oh, liking. Interesting. Okay, and what's the sixth? Authority. Oh yeah, authority. What an idiot! So I, I knew them. It's it's weird. Like you bring it up, I know what it is, but it's it's hard to you know remember it in a way to spit it out because it becomes second nature. Reciprocity. So let let's let's talk about what all of these mean. And and labeling is part of commitment. That's why it's not on the list. But labeling is extremely important when it comes to persuasion. Reciprocity is the basic um, necessity to give back when somebody gives us something. And this is, they've done so many studies on this. There was one in a museum with Coke cans where somebody at the end was, was given a Coke can as a gift and then to see how much they invested back in the person. Um, anyways, reciprocity is the basic belief that if I do something for you or if I give you something, even if it's something small, you feel subconsciously indebted to me. So I'm more likely to get something out of you if I give you something small. Um. So I see this all the time traveling. Someone comes up to you, try to give you a free bracelet. Like, no, no, free, free. Once you get it on you, hey, my family in Africa is yep. starving. People usually give them money. It's a typical thing with, with this um, persuasion. But the trippy part with this one is making other people give you stuff and they want to keep giving you more because they won't give you stuff if they didn't subconsciously like you. What is this, the Benjamin Franklin effect? I'm not sure I follow. So you have someone give you something and then yeah, it yeah. gets bigger and bigger. Oh, I think oh that, that's, the, that's the foot in the door principle. It's uh, uh, yes, absolutely. So if, so 
I always say this when I teach persuasion. If you're going to ask someone for a favor, either ask them for something smaller first or give them something smaller first. Either one will work for different reasons. Reciprocity works because if I give you something, you want to give something back. And asking for a favor from someone, something small before you ask for something bigger, is called the uh, commitment principle or the foot in the door principle, which is basically, it, it works for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons is you're building momentum um, and you're getting them to commit to helping you. So if I, especially if it's related, right? If I say, if I want you to come volunteer, if I want you to come volunteer for something that I'm doing, um, I, I might want to start by asking you to share my thing on social media, right? So if I say, so instead of coming to you and saying, hey, I'm doing a fundraiser this weekend, can you show up and help me? If I were to say, you know, I'm doing a fundraiser this weekend, would you do me a big favor and share this post? You would share that and now you're committed to my cause. You've publicly asserted that you're for this. So now if I ask you to come help me out on the weekend, you're more than likely to, you're more likely to follow through on that. The other reason is this, your mind has to justify things. So if I ask you, um, hey, Nick, can you lend me five bucks? Or hey, Nick, can you pass me that? What pass me that pen, something really small, something really stupid, and you do me this favor, your mind tells yourself, okay, well, I did this for Spidey because I must like Spidey. So now I'm more likely to get things out of you. And that's that's been proven psychologically that when you get people to do small favors, their mind believes it likes you. <laughs> yeah. And then the word because, right? Like if you say, Xerox. Hey, can you do this because yes, is a big Z thing? Yes, that's the Xerox study. So the Xerox study was something that they did where they went to a college and there was a lineup of people waiting to use the Xerox, the photocopier. And uh, one person was to go to the front of the line and say, excuse me, can I skip ahead of you? I only have one page to copy and I'm late for my class. So 90, very high percentage, 94% of people said yes. Obviously they said yes. That's very reasonable. You have one quick piece of paper and you're late for class. Got it. Now, they found that if the excuse was changed to, can I jump in front of you because I need to use the machine? Now, if we think about that, we go, that's a, that's a lame-ass excuse. It doesn't make any sense. Of course, everybody in line needs to use the machine. Back of the line, bucko. But uh, they found that the percentage drop was 1%. It went down to 93% because it, this is causality. Our entire lives, when we were kids, we tell, we tell our parents, can I stay up? Your parents will go, go to bed now. And you go, no, I want to stay up. And they go, no. And you go, why? And they go, because. You go, okay. So we accepted that because in and of itself is a good excuse. Um, so what happens in the mind is when you say the word because, the person's attention drops a lot. So if I say something to someone like, um, hey, can we, can, we, uh, can we push the meeting to tomorrow because it's raining outside? Those two things are freaking unrelated. They don't make any damn sense. But just... Having a reason, what any reason whatsoever, is far more effective than having no reason at all, even if your reason is shit. <laughs> yeah, that is trippy. That is a really trippy one. Hold on one second. The Ben Franklin effect is a proposed phenomenon. A person who has already performed a favor for another person is more likely to do another favor for the other than if they received a favor from that person. Interesting. I didn't an, explanation, know an explanation for this is cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is exactly what I said before. It's your cognitive dissonance is when your mind um, creates a reality for you based on your assumptions. So yeah, and you do not want to lose that reality. You're like you'll hold on for dear life and do the craziest shit. And that is something I don't want to get into it now because we're running a little late. Is uh, what I think happened in 2016 with Trump. 
I think brains and everything were totally on both sides, totally fucked. The cognitive distance is through the roof. And you see it now with, um, you know, well, the yeah. election before it was the Russians. Now the Trump people so, are talking so, is fake. So the way cognitive dissonance works, whether it's in politics or whether you're being recruited into a cult is one small thing is asked of you and you go, yeah, I can do that. And then something a little bit more is asked of you and you go, yeah, I can do that too. And now you're committed to the standpoint, which is why one of Cialdini's uh, pillars is commitment. Once you're committed to a standpoint, and I didn't know it was called, it's interesting. I didn't know it was called the Benjamin Franklin effect, because if you look up, look it up, Nick, on your end, foot in the door principle, you're, you're going to be reading almost the exact same thing. Uh, maybe the Benjamin Franklin effect is more about the cognitive dissonance of like, adhering to a standpoint and foot in the door is basically baby steps towards something, but they basically mean the same thing. Did you look it up? What does it say? The foot in the door technique is a compliance tactic that assumes agreeing to a small request increases the likelihood of agreeing to a second or larger request. Hold on. Are you doing that with me right now? Getting me to slowly do little things and then I go buy your product <laughs> online or what? I have not I have no products to sell. <laughs> but hold on, this cognitive distance shit is crazy because it's like your worldview and to feel secure, like you want it to, oh, this has got to be true. I don't want this to be false. Like when you take a crazy DMT trip or some shit and everything is shattered. That's hard for a lot of people. But I think this cognitive distance thing happened a lot in the last five years. People are living in two different worlds. People yeah. are seeing shit. It's crazy. Yeah. So, so cognitive dissonance, a lot of it is about avoiding discomfort, right? So, so it's, it's weird to kind of all of a sudden shift that perspective, right? So they've even done this with, there was a cult at some point. I don't remember what, what it was called, what the name of the cult was, but they had predicted the end of the world and they had all these following, all these followers that believe 100% that the end of the world was coming on a specific date because their cult leader had predicted this. The police force said, forget it, guys. The date is going to come and go. They're going to realize they're wrong. Everyone's going to go home. The date came and went. The world didn't end. What do you think happened? It was at Heaven's Gate, the mass suicide? No, it wasn't. It wasn't that. No. Um, what happened is they all, instead of being like, holy shit, we were wrong, their belief multiplied. And it's because of that. It's exactly because of that. Their belief in the cult multiplied. He got more followers and he got more people, more passionate about recruiting because they were like, Oh my God, we might be wrong. We're going to double down on our double down, belief. double yeah. down. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. All right. Next one. Um, kind of smooth through this. I love this shit though. Scarcity. I mean, this is Supreme does this amazing streetwear does this scarcity is very good. Just like the, uh, call limited. Yep. Exactly. Limited, limited availability. So, and, and the crazy thing is some of these work reciprocity and, um, Scarcity work, even if you know, even if the person it's being done to knows what's being done. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, even if a salesman tells me that he's running scarce on the thing I'm looking at, and I know he's doing that to sell it to me, it still works. That's what's crazy about this stuff. Is that so, show how powerful your subconscious is? Absolutely. Or, or, just, or just how it's based on real human nature. Like if I go to a store and the salesman tells me this is my last one. I ask him to see the system always. I say, show me, show me on your computer. I want to see on your computer where it says it's your last one. And if he shows me it and, and he's lying, I'm out of there. Um, but if I see that he's right and it's the last one, it still works on me. 
so yeah, scarcity is basically that. We want what's less available. And this works in relationships as well. Notice how when you're seeing someone and they're constantly after you, constantly texting you, constantly, you know, humping your leg, you put distance there because you know they're available to you. Whereas if, you know, there's a bit of distance, they're, they're playing a little bit, you know, hard to get. Well, that gets us intrigued. You know, why? What, why, you know, and that, that has a little bit to do with ego as well, but it's based in scarcity. So yeah, scarcity is, well, is a winner. You see it all the time in um, high-end stores and they have the line outside and they have a guy say, okay, you can come in now. People are waiting and there's only a certain amount of products there. Um, uh, St. Laurent has like five yep. shirts available. Yep. I mean, it's crazy, but yeah, that, but that's why they're high-end because they make yeah. limited runs. Yeah. Um, authority. Authority. Very simple. Authority is either put yourself in a position where you can convince someone you're an authority on a subject or quote someone that they already know to be an authority on the subject. And in our world and Nick, your world, there's one word that is all of this endorsement. What happens? Endorsements. What ha- what happens if uh, what happens if Michael Jordan wears a well I don't know if Michael Jordan's relevant anymore I'm becoming a fossil what happens if uh, what happens if uh, Tom Brady endorses a certain type of football or a certain type of football cleat or some sort of football related product what happens Yeah it's the top Jordan is still super big the okay. last chance you documentary came out and everyone has the Jordans but yeah I know what you mean the authority authority endorsement. How can you use this in your everyday life? Just by quoting, you say an expert or either quoting an expert. So if you know, it doesn't matter what you're trying to sell. If an expert in the field believes in that, or let's say, let's say, give me, give me a situation where you want to persuade someone. We talked a lot about dating and sales. What's another one? Uh, hmm. Dating sales. That's two of the big ones, isn't it? Sales yeah. and dating pretty much. <laughs> Uh, let's say, let's say, okay, let's say getting a good table at a restaurant. I just made that up. Yeah. Um, if I go into a restaurant that I've been to previously and the previous time I was there, I met the manager. This time I come in, instead of telling the host, hey, can I get that table by the window? I go, hey, can I get that table by the window? Last time I was here, Martin was really kind and and told me to ask next time I come in here. He knows who Martin is. Martin's the manager. That's authority. You have better odds. Beautiful. Commitment and consistency. Commitment and consistency. One of my faves. I guess they're all some of my faves. I talk about all these in my lecture. Uh, Commitment and consistency is basically what we're talking about. Foot in the door. Benjamin Franklin effect, which I totally knew what that meant. I'm kidding. I didn't. Um, Basically, when we get someone to commit to a standpoint, so one of my favorite studies with this was this uh, the drive safe. What was it called? Something about billboards. I don't remember what it was called, but I talked about it in a recent video, but I forgot what it was called. Anyways, um, they went to a neighborhood and they asked people in that neighborhood if they could put a big sign that says drive safe, drive carefully on their lawn. And most people said no. Very few said yes. Maybe something like 15% said yes. Uh then they went to a nearby neighborhood and they were able to increase that, yes, to almost like 90-some. I can't remember what the percentage was, but really, really high percentage. And the way they did that is two weeks beforehand, they went in with a little sticker. And they said, I could put this little sticker in your window that says drive safe. People, everyone said, almost everyone said yes to that. 
No, I remember now. About 90-something percent of people said yes to that. Then when they came back and said, hey, can we put this big billboard? The campaign's doing really well. 70-something people said yes to that, which was a rise from something like 10, 15%. That's gigantic. That's so huge. Um, and the reason for that is because with that sticker, you're committed to a standpoint. You say, I am for safe driving. That's why I have the sticker. So if somebody comes in and says, can we put a big billboard? You go, yes, of course. I am the king of safe driving. So we get people committed uh, and, and that, that creates a need for consistency. And I was talking earlier about labeling. One of the best ways to do this is called labeling. In other words, if I'm going to ask someone to donate to my fundraiser, my odds are a lot better if I call them charitable or they call themselves charitable before I ask for the donation because that creates a label that creates a need for consistency and commitment to a standpoint. If you say you're charitable, you're more likely to give me money for my fundraiser to stay consistent and committed to that charitable cause. Yeah, you did talk about that neighborhood study in one of your YouTube videos. Um, everyone, you got to check out his YouTube channel. It's very good. All about this kind of stuff. I love it a lot. But just like you just said, the consistency, this is what all the YouTubers do. You know, it's, hey, just if you if you don't want to subscribe to my Patreon, just like it, um, like the video, then subscribe. And then they yep. funnel them down the road to Absolutely. merchandise, to bigger Absolutely. things. That's what funnels are. Funnels are exactly that. Do a small action. Just do me this small, do this small thing. It's not going to take you any time. Hey, listen, guys, I do a lot of magic tutorials on my channel as well. I teach magic tricks and mentalism, which is, which is my background. And uh, on the channel, you know, you know, I'm, hey guys, I'm teaching you this trick. Do me a favor, like this video. And then, you know, next time it's like, like this video and subscribe. And then, oh, you're subscribed now. Come to this event, you know, but it's, I'm not doing it sneakily. It's just your fans. That's how you build a fan base, right? It's just the way it works. 100%. Commitment. And it's worked out for you. You're about 250,000 subscribers. That's More, 260 crazy. some, I don't know. Oh, 260, yeah. my bad. What, um... How long did that take you to get? Well, here's the thing. I, I buckled down and decided to focus on YouTube two or three years ago. But before that, I had one or two videos that were just sitting there on the channel pulling in subscribers like crazy because a few of them went viral. But I wasn't a YouTuber. I had just put them on YouTube, just left them there, and they went crazy viral. I would see all these comments and people coming in. When I buckled down and I said, I'm going to start YouTubing, that was about two, three years ago. I was at a, less than 100,000 subscribers at the time, and I decided to start growing it. So That's I am now. People have that. zero clue how um, persuasive and know what the fuck they're doing, like the, the Paul brothers are. They get tens of millions of subscribers. There's some shit going on, like the principles of all this persuasion stuff, and not just stupid kids. And they're, they're stumbling on it. They're stumbling on, you know, they do stuff with celebrities. That's authority. They do uh, they, they, Mr. Beast, the king of reciprocity. Gives things, gets things, right? Gives away millions, receives millions. King of reciprocity. Mr. Beast, that's, you know, I'm so glad you brought that up because we're talking about reciprocity earlier. There's no better example on the planet, nor will there ever be, than Mr. Effing Beast. Um but yeah, the Paul brothers, you know, there's, what is there? There's authority. There's, there's, there's commitment. When you, when you buy into that sort of craziness. Every day, they vlogged yeah. every day. Consistency. And when you see that and you kind of, what happens is you, you fall in love with the personality and you tell people, right? You tell people, you got to go watch this. That's commitment. The second you go tell people, you got to go watch these guys. You're committing to that standpoint. So that's big on commitment. Um, they're creating their own celebrity status, their scarcity there for sure, because they're so unobtainable. 
well, in, in all the hate a lot of these people get, and it just keeps fueling it. I mean, what is that with the persuasion? I mean, because everyone's talking about you, so subconsciously you you feel some sort of emotion. They they get emotion out of you, whether you hate them or love them. Um, that that on to be very honest with you, that's just numbers. That's just sheer numbers. What, but you're right. Whether you get someone to hate you or love you, as long as they're talking about you, it's good. So if I make a piece of, and I know, I know, I don't want to say a name on the podcast because it's. I don't know if they would want me to say this, but I know two social media moguls. I'm talking about guys who get more views than anyone you know. Some of the top channels, and I don't even want to say what platform they're on because it'll help you narrow it down. And when we're done with the interview, I'll tell you who it is. But two giants in social media who have told me personally that their goal with some of their content is purposely to piss people off. Look at Facebook comments. All the viral videos are people talking shit and these people are getting 50 million views and putting yep. all that money. I mean, it, yep. it's all negative. It's crazy. Yep. But but on paper, it's worth the same thing. Yeah, because, well, here's, it's called clickbait too. The politics, the, the, uh, the mainstream media with Trump was 100%, I mean, get angry. Angry, angry, click, click, click. That's what it all is. You know what I mean? Because yep. that anger... Uh, almost sometimes is more powerful to get emotion or get some sort of engagement. Yeah. And, and what Trump did, and I'm not, you know, I don't want to talk about whether I'm pro or, or against this is not about politics, but what Trump did is he polarized opinions. There was no longer anyone who's kind of for Trump or kind of against Trump. You either love him or you hate him. He polarized America, which is why that animosity still exists. There used to be a time where a Republican and a conservative could sit down and have a pleasant conversation. Um, and it's fine. Agree to disagree. Yeah, I could see your point a little bit. You could see my point a little bit. But it got polarized because everyone's now either like, how can you love that guy? He's such a POS. And then other people are like, how can you hate this guy? He's our savior. So it's what we said earlier. It's that foot in the door, commitment, consistency, labeling, and building that sort of strong commitment. Side note, how persuasive do you think Trump is? to go from a celebrity to a president with no political experience and then other persuasive people um, that that you think are the most persuasive in the world? Um, I So like celebrities that you would know? So world famous people, the most persuasive people. Okay, so we have, I think Trump is excellent at persuasion. I think he's excellent at persuasion. I think he understands his crowd. I think he knows how to talk to them. Uh, I think that, I would I would almost bet you that multiple times speeches were written for him and he redlined them and he said nope that wouldn't work like he knew better than his speechwriters on how to communicate with his demographic and there's something he does a lot which is he uses social proof a lot I have a whole video about how Donald Trump uses social proof because everyone's saying this everyone's doing this exactly everybody tells me how I'm the best that no 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 like that's not funded that doesn't that's not you know it's not authority it's not like it's not like such and such competent person told me this. It's everybody tells me how how I'm the best at this. And everybody knows that and everyone's saying this and everyone's saying that. He uses that very, very effectively. Donald Trump is very persuasive. Who else? Gary V, obviously. Um, even without knowing or studying it, Gary V is a very powerful speaker. Very simple, very to the point. The message is simple. Get off your ass, make your dreams come true. Uh, but 
he's got a lot of persuasion. He's very likable, very charismatic. Uh, who else? Who else? Oh, you know what? I think Russell Brand. I think Russell Brand is a very charismatic and persuasive speaker. You, you've There's, seen the YouTube channel uh, Charisma on Command, right? I have bits and pieces. I have. They're Why? pretty good of talking about this and diving. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, but uh, yeah, but you asked me about like specific celebrities. So I'm, yeah. Oh, do you mean so? You mean they talked about Russell Brand? I would agree with that. I would absolutely agree that. Russell Brand well, is Obama was similar in the 2008 with the hope message and all that. Listen, he was, listen, listen, no one's going to become the president of the United States if they're not good at persuasion. So anyone who sat in that seat to a certain extent has that persuasive charisma. Um, but yeah, Russell Brand to me, I think he's got like real, real good intelligence. Uh, he's got that goofiness, but then when he speaks, there's such intelligence behind it and he's very likable and I like to listen to him. Who else? There's a couple of other people who I find. Give me a sec. I'm trying to think of who like my go-tos are. I'm trying to think of YouTubers or people that I really like their vibe. Elon Musk? Very much so. Very much so. But it's also Elon Musk is also all authority, right? Like he knows his shit really well. So it's like even if he ignores everything else, the authority is really it's, – it's kind of like uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, right? The guy, the guy, there's nothing the guy doesn't know. So yeah, he's the authority on everything. Um, who else? You know, if you look at certain, even like from my field, certain magicians, like for example, Chris Angel, you could think what you want about the guy's magic or his vibe. He is at the end of the day, very charismatic. Um, I'm trying to think of like hosts. Because you know, hosts tend to be very charismatic. Oh, uh, Harvey. Um, what's his name? Steve Harvey. Steve Harvey. Quite a lot of charisma. Knows his crowd. Knows how to talk to his crowd. How to appeal to his own audience. Um, yeah. Next one. Uh, liking. That's the fifth one. Liking is simple, man. Liking is super simple. We don't even have to explain it. If someone likes you, they're more likely to do what it is you want them to do. Your top yeah. tips to get people to like you. Create good rapport, uh, care about them, use the other pillars of of uh, of persuasion, things like reciprocity, do do things for them. And not 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 because you want something out of them, but because be more giving. Give more than give more than you take, and people would like you. Care about them more than you care about yourself, and people would like you. Um, yeah, it's as simple as that. Be likable. That's it. Do you think that though? Because like we talked about the distance and not being hugging them. If you're trying to give, give, give. People push you away. And I mean, um, so what do you mean? I, think, I like I think, you more. I think in a romantic situation, scarcity works. But I think overall, in a being likable, socially likable, who doesn't like the guy who brings donuts to meetings at the office? You know. So nice guys get taken advantage of. I know they do. Be, I'm not saying be taken advantage of. I'm just saying be good to people. Be good to be good to good people. I think that'll make you likable. Fair enough. Consensus, social proof. We've hit on that a lot. Yeah. And this 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 makes more sense with the the Louis Vuitton line outside when they have room in the store. The show people are waiting in line or at clubs. They do it all the time at clubs. Tons of people waiting outside. Yeah, I hate it. I grew so little known secret about me. I grew up in a very wealthy family. Uh, so I, I was, I grew up around that, you know, people who 
try to use scarcity but use it very wrong like they try to they try to come off as elite and 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 in demand and they have this snobby shit attitude and i learned to despise it i i grew up to absolutely hate that and i run away from it now so that's why you rebelled into a magician mentalist because of it rebel i rebelled but you know the mindset of success is still there um you know i go to my dad all the time for business advice and and growth advice when it comes to finances and business and things like that. But yeah, I, I hate that snooty ass vibe. Can't stand it. My dad, can, my dad isn't at all. How can, I don't want to say fake social proof, but yeah, fake social proof selling a product or yourself on the street. I mean, how do you do that without, you know, wearing stupid stuff and being a, peacocking, a peacock? <laughs> yeah. um, uh, build slowly, but surely, you know, listen, listen, If you buy with $20,000 a verified Instagram account with 50,000 followers, is that, good? is that effective social proof? I'm not going to lie. Yes, it is. It's What? crazy. It's, yeah. so Instagram is so fake. So many people that I, the stuff I've seen behind the scenes with like kind of the, these interviews and the blue checks and yep. whatnot, it's so fake. Yep. 90% of this is fake. Yep. But it's social proof, isn't it? So if you can leverage that, will it work? Yeah, it'll work. Uh, if, if you go to a business meeting and you give them your social media and they go and you have, they see that number, it says 50,000, you got that cute little blue check mark next to your name. Yeah, it's going to work. You have to decide if you want to build your empire on illusions or not. I don't. I want everything that I build to be on a real foundation. So for me, it's baby steps, you know? Um, I see hustlers out there, real hustlers, and they pride themselves on the 2,000 followers they got. And you know what? I will give you a bigger hug and a bigger high five for 2,000 real followers that you built than 50,000 fake followers that you bought. Baby steps. Build it up. No, I think it, it really is uh, the facade and those kind of people that don't last. The second you start digging in a little bit, it kind of all falls apart like a house of cards. Yep. Yep, Are you seeing us, the 2,000 followers? Because that's what we got right now. So, no, no, I didn't five. know that. High five, man. Big high five. That's awesome. That's that, good for you. That's a great number. Uh, I view this as more a leveraging tool to build relationships and, and personal lives and, and using it to connect people. But yeah, I think if you focus on that kind of shit, it's, it never ends well. But I think it's a good idea to figure out how you could persuade better with social proof in certain ways. Know what I mean? I, absolutely. I think... You give yourself a bit of an edge, but never use it fake. to manipulate. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Don't you know, don't fake it. Don't manipulate. Don't be a weasel. Don't be a shithead. You I know, think do, that's the, the key thought of this whole thing is I think the that's it. manipulation and persuasion. And they persuade yeah. for good. Yeah. Don't manipulate because then you start getting in bad territory. Absolutely. Guys, it's very simple. We're living in a world where there's so much fake shit and so much negativity. Be the opposing force. Be real. Be authentic be loving, give. And, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, if nothing else, you will have made the world a better place. Top three books, Spidey. The, the stuff we talk about, what would you recommend? Top three books. <sighs> Gotta be Influence uh, by Cialdini. You talked about that. That's a great one. Um, if you guys are interested in the best information on reading body language, reading people, not cold reading, but just reading people, um, Six Minute X-Ray by Chase Hughes. I can't recommend that enough. When it comes to persuasion, 
I got to stick to Chase Hughes, man. We got influenced by Cialdini, but the ellipsis manual by Chase Hughes, another, that is in terms of persuasion. I've, I've never seen a book that good. It's not only about what it is, what persuasion is, but how to use it. Um, and it's very NLP based, very language based, less of that Cialdini sort of social persuasion stuff, but more like the actual language of persuasion. Um, yeah. And this is this is your guy, so you know for a fact he's the real deal. He was oh, FBI, dude, yeah. everything. Oh yeah, Chase is a good friend, and and I'm not rec- I'm not recommending this because he's a good friend. I looked up to him before he was a friend. That's very important to state. Um, but you know, I love to encourage my friends, and he's awesome. Okay, last thing. I, I've loved this so much. Hopefully, we do it again. Um, Anytime. As above, so below. What do you think? Haven't read it. Is that, that's the whole magic thing, isn't it? The the trippy stuff. I think there is some real magic deep down somewhere with the world and. Wait, wait. Do you mean as a, sorry, sorry, as above, so below? I thought I thought you were talking about a book. Do you mean no, that as a, as a mantra? Yeah. As above, so below. What does that mean to you? It's the magical thing, or as what you see becomes reality. I mean, it's said in the magic world, isn't it? No, not that I know of. Maybe I'm. Maybe I'm. Miss- I've been a, I've been a magician longer than I've been anything else on this planet. I've never heard that. Hold on one second. As above, so below. I thought that was a term in um in magic, but I think it has to do with like manifestation and as what you can put in your head, you can put into reality. And this is where I think there might be something to magic, where um, there's that particle that you can observe and you can change it. Now they talked about the scientists. There's uh, maybe I'm just tripping out here, but I think there is something to controlling the reality. And if we're in a simulation or not, and maybe that's how you can hack in with the magic, you know, affirmations are magic to me. Mm-hmm. I'm saying too much. <laughs> no, no, it's just not, it's just not my, you know, I I've been sitting here preaching expertise. It's not my field. I do magic as in sleight of hand magic as in card tricks, you know? Awesome. Well, hey, Spidey, pick picture stuff. It's Spidey Hypnosis on YouTube. Um, what's Spidey your Instagram? Hypnosis. Same Spidey Hypnosis, one word. S-P-I-D-E-Y Hypnosis, H-Y-P-N-O-S-I-S. I really recommend check out his mentalist videos where he dissects what's real and, and what's not. I think it's amazing, but awesome. I appreciate the time, Spidey. You need to get some sleep, man. It's about three, four o'clock in the morning your time. Don't worry about me. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening.